Aquarian Music Witch, the podcast. Well, usually I just sort of jump in, but I'm really um, very excited to talk to you because when I came across your social media, I was really impressed with your entire background. I completely know firsthand how hard it is to get that far in academia, especially as a queer person or a person with really any kind of marginalization or especially compounding marginalized factors. But even like putting identity totally aside, you have such a depth and a breadth of areas of interest and and like of study. And I thought that it was just really interesting that you're now thinking about turning to coaching. And I saw that you talk on your channel about how people sometimes consider life coaches and that kind of thing to be like a scam. Yeah. Um, and and let me back up to you. You're also Dr. Simone Kolish, which is um, congratulations. That's extremely impressive too, to reach that far. Um, but I think we both recognize there are some grifters in that kind of coaching space. And I personally believe there's a lot of value to getting guidance from a responsible and educated life coach who has a philosophy that aligns with you, especially when there's more, like more traditional forms of help are not necessarily designed or optimized for you. And I also know that at least for me, there's a lot of imposter syndrome that comes when you're trying to set yourself and your skills up as a brand, there's like a lot of external people and things trying to make you feel less than and illegitimate and like you shouldn't even try. So I hope I'm not rambling too much, but I would really love to just hear, first of all, how you got to that point and like what kind of life experiences uh, are setting you on that path and how you're navigating that and accomplishing the the amount of amazing things that you have. Uh, sure. Thank you for having me. First of all, I really appreciate it. I... Uh, initially was going to be a physician back when I was little and I went into a pre-medicine program at NYU um, in part because as immigrant children we are pushed into medicine law or business but in part because I was really into uh, biology. And that's what I received my bachelor's in. And at some point throughout college, I realized that healthcare isn't all it's cracked up to be. And it was particularly when I learned of intersex people. And as a biologist, it was a huge shock that I did not know of sex as a spectrum, nor of how physicians in the United States in particular approach intersex infants. And something changed that week when um, several intersex activists came to NYU and gave a presentation. And my life was always complicated and I was getting married needlessly. <laughs> and I was pregnant during my senior year of college and just did not really have the passion to pursue medical school as much as when I began college. So I, I pursued a master's in public health instead. And I think during that program, because we learned social determinants of, of health and illness, you know, my faith, whatever 
faith I had in the healthcare system was further shaken because I learned about inequality and um but learning it is one thing and living it is another and you know I was gaining experience as a queer person and as a pregnant person and I came out as non-binary around then too and just sort of realizing that there are entire populations left out of uh, health and care and so I thought okay well let me go and work you know there was a recession and uh, I had my second by then and I went to work for the American Cancer Society for a few years as a patient navigator and I not only realized that you know, the difference between survival and death is one's race and one's class and one's location in New York City. But I, I realized that I was <laughs> angry at physicians and pharmaceutical companies for how they determine pricing. And that even if I was the smartest, most competent physician, that my hands would be tied by insurance and by bureaucracy. And I burnt out rather quickly trying to help, you know, hundreds of people a week trying to get them grants. And I was pretty successful in getting folks grants to afford their cancer treatment. I think I got nearly a million dollars worth in grants, but I couldn't wow. understand why these grants were necessary in the first place if if people saved you know their whole lives and supposedly they did everything right according to our society and would just end up destitute anywho <laughs> and and i also couldn't understand why people who are oncologists were really poorly equipped to help folks through their last days. And I kind of learned on the job to support people. And I couldn't understand why we weren't encouraging hospice care a lot more of the time either. It was really heartbreaking that we would over treat people and do chemo and radiation and all sorts of really invasive treatments up until the last few weeks, instead of just allowing folks to come to terms with where they are and where their family member is and just, you know, managing pain and all of that. So, it, I mean, something broke in me as part of that job. And I just, I needed to understand what's wrong with society and i i ended up doing a phd which in retrospect is hilarious because <laughs> that certainly teaches you what's wrong with society but i i did not know that prior to and i didn't care what it was in actually i remember googling like sociology and psychology and anthropology and history it wasn't relevant really to me like in what i should get it just as long as it taught me something about the world and I could teach undergraduates. I always wanted to teach, and this is going to make sense now as I move into life coaching, but I knew that I wasn't able to teach K through 12 because there are a lot of restrictions placed on 
teachers in middle school or high school by parents and, and the state. And so I wanted to teach undergraduate students thinking that there was less restriction. Um, but again, I was not very informed and I did end up doing a PhD in sociology. And during it, I got radicalized in terms of like my class consciousness. I was an adjunct for over 10 years. I'm back to being an adjunct now. But in any case, I realized that um, the people who teach our children are underpaid by and large, not counting the like white men who are tenured and who do get paid if they're in economics, for example. But I was doing a sociology PhD in social sciences and humanities are under attack right now. And so um, that attack isn't new. It began long ago with, you know, privatizing um, higher ed and adjunctification of faculty and, you know, really um, mistreating graduate students. And so anyway, as I was trying to get my PhD, I was doing a lot of organizing and I was working a lot. I had my third kid. There was no parental leave at the time and and I had to teach two weeks after delivering him and he was like nearly 11 pounds and so I was teaching and I was in pain and I was doing intro to women's studies um and as usual my life bled into my work and there was no distinct distinction I can make between what we study as you know academics and what we live out as multiply marginalized people. And so along those lines, I wanted to explore being harassed on the streets of New York sort of all the time since I was 11, 12. And so did my students. And there wasn't a lot of academic attention on this. There was some activist attention on this. And so for the next 10 years, I did work on interviewing people who harass others, people who get harassed, and eventually wrote my book, um, mm -hmm. Everyday Violence, the public harassment of women and LGBTQ people. And, you know, as that book was written, I I shifted. I, I used to care about what the oppressor classes um, thought, like what men thought and cisgender people thought and why they did what they did. And then I really stopped caring and shifted to kind of a more of a feminist ethic um, to consider the impacts of any form of oppression. And um, I, I got a concentration in LGBTQ studies and a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. Um, so I hid, I would say I hid behind education uh, as a as a place of safety, but a, but also as a very precarious place um, because I I could not afford to live. So once I graduated in 2019, I got a job out in Maryland. And um, by then I, you know, was pregnant again with now my wife's embryo we were doing reciprocal IVF and um, the pandemic hit the baby was born one day New York went to went into shutdown the next oh no and two months after that we were moving and I ended up at a liberal arts college so to speak and it was really difficult because I was 
the perfect academic, you know, great at research, great at teaching, loved service. But I, you know, had to realize that no matter where I was teaching, the institution does not actually care to uh, foster inclusivity <laughs> and diversity and whatnot. And, and this actually got exacerbated because of the pandemic, because we lost so many disabled students. We lost so many disabled faculty. We were forced to teach in person at some point. And then I became a problem, quote unquote, because I wanted to remain virtual. And many professors got fired or laid off and and, and there were situations far worse than mine uh, that I can't even speak about, uh, which showed me they don't care about us, not one single bit. And um, and so when I eventually did go end up teaching in person, they dropped the mask mandate mid-semester and just left me high and dry, but also started this process of removal where they said, you know, students have this kind of feedback. Of course, it was just a few students, but in any case, uh, and they said, you're talking about Black people too much, and you're spreading the lesbian agenda. And and I had to sit through this ridiculous interrogation <laughs> for hours where I was like, I stand by everything that I teach, and I stand by what I said. But I, I didn't realize it was just their, you know, initial phase of firing me. And then Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I was so angry and I was so scared, just like so many other people. And I made a few TikToks uh, calling out conservatives uh, as our enemies for doing this and calling out liberals and moderates as well for their complicity. And those TikToks were used to fire me um, like as the last nail in the coffin and being fired after giving over a decade of my life to academia was like a blessing in disguise because it left me to figure out who I am if I'm not successful based on society's ideas of success. And it took me a few years to figure that out. I'm still working on it, but eventually when you're no longer part of that all-consuming grind for productivity and when it, when that voice that endless voice of you have to publish more and do more and write more and whatever was quieted for me i said okay what do i want to do and i was always a mentor right and an academic coach anyway for some years and i said you know I don't even really I don't I don't mind helping folks through the academic grind but I but I have so much more to offer. This was also when I came to understand I'm autistic and 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 then got diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos and Hashimoto's and PMDD and so you know as I healed through burnout I had to address um my disabilities that you know that are exacerbated by things like graduate school and just and being mistreated and and so I learned a lot about healthcare once again and how no one is believed and we're gaslit all the time and how I had to advocate for years to to figure out what's going on with me and my mental health as well and so 
I realized there are a lot of other people struggling in very similar ways. I was also do collecting data for my second book, and the second book is on reproductive journeys of transgender and non-binary people. But as it turns out, this same population is also multiply disabled and often neurodivergent. And mm -hmm. as I was listening to these people's stories of healthcare or lack thereof, I realized how many of us are in the same boat. Late in life diagnosed autistic or having ADHD or both, people who were um, gendered as girls earlier on and we have issues with PCOS and fertility and infertility and PMDD, folks who have faced trauma, right? And so now go through PTSD, CPTSD, um, all sorts of uh, nervous system dysregulation. And then people who are oppressed in society, which is, of course, connected to our health and well-being. And so I saw an autistic life coach at some point, and she changed my life. I never talked to another autistic provider in in my entire life, and I've I've had a lot of providers, and it just was this serendipitous, you know, event. And um, and I thought, you know, there are not a lot of autistic life coaches out there, or any kind of coaches who are. LGBTQ or who can um, or who can combine as you know you know talking magic with talking science and, mm -hmm. and and talking activism and talking parenthood and just not gaslighting folks about where they're at and how hard they're finding whatever that moment is to be and so I said let's let's go for it and my wife helped me so much you know because she's a techie and she put my website together and I've been on uh, social media for some years and so have you know established a following on TikTok and on Twitter and you know just went to my um, circle of friends and acquaintances and and said this is what I'm doing and it's been it's been pretty great I still you know adjunct and teaching is an it remains very important to me, you know, teaching undergraduates, but um, at every school I adjunct, women's studies in particular is under attack. And so I don't know how long we can do this. And um, and it's important to me to, to work virtually and to set my own schedule and to be in charge of my time and to not be evaluated by people that I do not consider my my peers. And I think what academia does is it infantilizes us, even though we are so credentialed and competent and smart and capable. And I don't want to feel that anymore. And when you work for yourself and clients choose you, it's a better setup for a lot of us because no one's held captive. No one's required to be there. People want to work with you for your expertise and your skill set and if they don't they don't have to and so it's a lot more adult of an interaction I think and I and beyond that I've found this life coaching to be a very sacred experience for me because I have gone through a lot in my life and I believe that can help people and then you see folks at different points on their journey 
parts of which you've already traversed. <laughs> and then you could also use your autistic brain to just help them with untangling, you know, their clusterfuck of a life mm -hmm. in a sense. I hope it's okay to curse. Yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. Please take it out <laughs> and and to to use what so many consider to be a problem to use your nervous system and your neurotype to um, see clearly for others has been a very sacred experience to recognize that other people are where you used to be or where others used to be and you know exactly how to get them from point a to point b and so much of it is just about believing them <laughs> and i know that sounds real really simple but no one's believing us mm -hmm. no system no provider no therapist no family member people aren't believed when uh folks are experiencing pain or mental anguish or even coming to understand their transgender or queer or whatever and someone like me is perfectly suited to say oh that's wonderful like that's amazing we're going to sit here and celebrate that for a minute and then we're going to work on getting you to a place where you can celebrate it yourself, you know? So the idea of life coaching is obviously to work yourself out of a job and to get a person to a place where they feel confident in approaching life, navigating life uh, on their own. And if they then need support, they can, you know, they can ask, but that they feel capable on their own. And, um, Unfortunately, you know, that takes a long time <laughs> because there are a lot of different issues we need to to work through and and those do take years but but you know, I I work with incredible people every day and it's just it's just been it's not anything I've ever imagined doing, but it's exactly what all my uh, education and lived experience led me to uh be good at. Yeah. Right now. Well, I'm so thankful actually that you're on that frontier and I can't even express to you how parallel uh, the story that you tell me is is to mine <laughs> in so many ways. And uh, hiding in education was something that I think I also did that a lot of us do. And then we get to that high point where we realize, oh, no, like I did learn. I know what is going on here and absolutely no one can hear it. And uh, and it's just it's just uh, you talk about validation or uh, I don't think you use the word validation, but that's but it's so important and even just I guess representation too is part of that like hearing a story like that and just being like uh, yeah we're not only are we not alone I think this does happen to a lot of people who wake up in those ways and I also I did order your first book um the everyday violence book and it has not arrived in the mail yet but I am so excited to read it actually and I will be reading it and um I was reading the reviews and it's just a huge deal that you've completed a work like that. I know it takes a huge amount of passion and effort to execute. And also hearing that you had three children on top of that. I just want to, I just like amazing. Um, but I guess I'm wondering if you've had any new insights about your audience or based on how people have reacted to that message since the book was published. So I don't think enough people have read it. <laughs> I think every author feels that way. 
And maybe that's um, a good thing, too, because there's so much backlash against public scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean intellectual. That's fine. I mean, folks being harassed and doxxed and threatened. Absolutely. And for their work. And, and so I haven't faced that in response to my book. I have received great feedback from undergraduates and graduate students who read it because folks are assigning it across a variety of, of courses um, that it's written accessibly. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear that because it's, it's what I worked very hard to achieve. And, and you're right. I, I struggled to put it all together because when I was finishing it up, you know, I had my infant. And so I wrote it in the first year of the pandemic or finished it, I think then too. And I, I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't uh, taking care of myself, but we were also so deathly afraid in New York because of, of how the pandemic impacted us there specifically. And, um, and I wouldn't um, recommend that process, that kind of work to anyone because I was, you know, burnt out. And I, I, I don't understand that person anymore who wrote every night as, as the baby slept um, because I was being driven by the wrong things, which was that I'll eventually need this book for tenure and it better be out first or second year. I'm on the tenure track and, you know, I, I need to, to do it now. And all of that is manufactured anxiety. It's manufactured urgency. Um, And so now that I'm, you know, some years out and I'm working on my second book and by working, I'm thinking about it. I'm not actively working on it because I'm still in serious recovery from burnout and I refuse to work on it simply because I have to. And now that I work for myself, there are no looming deadlines or tenure clocks. And I, I wonder how to deal with feeling that, you know, if my pace is slower, then I'm somehow not, you know, producing fast enough to honor the voices and the people who interviewed with me. I think that is on that is the only factor that drives me now is that I want to give those words space and I want to put them on a page and I want to tell people stories and uh, I I best get to it, you know, because expanding the reproductive justice agenda to incorporate transgender and non-binary people is a really timely topic. I mean, just anything regarding reproductive justice at the moment is, um, is important and I want to get that data out there, but I I refuse to work on it until I feel uh, able to. So in retrospect, um, I will simply write a shorter book. It is not going to be an academic piece of work as much. Um, My editors suggested it could be written as a trade book, you know, just for popular consumption. Uh, And my first book is for popular consumption, too. It's just that it's not being consumed (laughs) as it should. Um, But this one is going to be written more from a personal perspective, taking the reader through, you know, my own reproductive journeys, uh, which have been many, uh, and for it to be more vulnerable. So what I've learned is to be more vulnerable, to not have to 
work in a way that others deem legitimate. Like, because that initial book was my dissertation turned into a book, it had a lot of these components, you know, I oversighted people, I, you know, I think my lit review was like, 50,000 pages, I don't know. Uh, and I I had to create models for the book because I thought models are important. And so now all of that, you know, after sloughing all of that and coming into this business and into my own, right? Really coming into my own. Um, that vulnerability is really a double-edged sword. It's it opens you up to a lot more critique, you know, and people are very ready, gleefully so, to critique everyone. But I know there are um, there are these like um, rumor boards where it's essentially a cesspool of all these like people who post anonymously and they are constantly discussing uh, those of us in the public eye and making fun of um, our trajectory. And so they haven't stopped talking about me for the last decade. <laughs> and and it shows that what we do as trailblazers, I, I think, as multiply marginalized people, um, has all those other people all tied up and obsessed about our movement, our growth and our evolution. And so... You know, so vulnerability exposes exposes you to claims of delegitimacy, lack of scientific rigor, all of that stuff. But I, I still want to give these folks who interviewed with me um, their time uh, and and I'll, I'll get there. Um, I wanted to say that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, I was no longer able to do work on this book, not just because I got fired, but because it was too difficult to talk about this topic of reproductive justice and then at some point maybe a year after that as I as I shifted gears I found that passion for it again and that's when I met with my editors and a couple of other editors who are interested there are many editors interested in this work so that's something I want our viewers to hear um who need who say there is a very serious need for this kind of conversation and so that was really encouraging for me um and uh gave me some some energy to kind of revisit and look at my data again um but i think instead of oversighting and um trying that hard I think I'm just going to let their stories speak and then I will respond to their stories with my own and um th that's gonna have to be good enough <laughs> it's gonna be a different kind of book but it's going to be a, a much more evolved mature version when I read my first book now I see a different version a younger oh. version of me I still think it's great uh, <laughs> but it's 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 a version, you know, so uh, I'm interested in what this new book is going to look like when I care a lot less about academic <laughs> accolades. And I think it's going to be angrier. I think it's going to take healthcare to task the way I always should have uh, and the way I kind of did my whole life anyway. But now I'm prepared to really say you harm people and here's how. Aquarian Music Witch, the podcast, is made possible by listeners like you. To support this project, 
You can contribute directly through our Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com slash AquarianMusicWitch. Or, consider subscribing to our Supercast page. With the AMW Supercast Content Access Pass, you'll gain access to a vault of exclusive content and other cosmic perks starting at just $5 a month. Now, back to the show. That balance of safety and visibility becomes so interesting too because vulnerability, I totally agree with you, is a double-edged sword. And there's this weird, like when you're in academia too and you're writing a book, there's a certain kind of book that's for academia and you're, and you can kind of market it to the students. You can market it to other professors who might appreciate it. And a lot of, a lot of academics, as you know, their first book is kind of coming out of the dissertation and is an extension of that or whatever it is. Um, and I think a lot of us do that kind of approach it. Like let's, you know, anxiously try to cover all of our bases and, and do the, the thing you're never going to quite. Um, but that's one audience and it is like very niche, like even a successful book in that audience is not going to be, on all the shelves at Borders, or is Borders even open anymore? But um, but another kind of book is this more like geared toward the men. And I think that when you're when we're in you're in you're in women's studies, when you're in any kind of like queer or critical theory, um, or any spaces like that, I think a lot of times those books they become more reflexive, and they do kind of blur those lines and 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 stand in the middle somewhere maybe. But I'm really excited to see something that's like more geared toward just uh, the people. And then you've brought up Roe v. Wade a couple of times. And I want to know if there are any like specific political frameworks or policy changes that you think are particularly valuable that might help to address and like mitigate the forms of violence that you're talking about or the reproductive issues that you're talking about. Is there anything you feel especially strongly people should be talking about more, people should be advocating for? Um, or that you see really helps your clients? Yeah, that's a really good question. Of course, immediately I think about uh, Black maternal mortality rates and the medical racism embedded in especially the reproductive field um, here in the United States. And, you know, Black providers, midwives, doulas, practitioners have been screaming into the void for decades. And um, the discrepancy has gotten only worse because of the pandemic and because of the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 and uh, on black and brown people, but also on pregnant people and, you know, and their children as a result. And so I, I immediately think of all the conversations involved with options, community, care, Different states are involved in a variety of policy changes to try to alleviate the, you know, the maternal mortality crisis for Black people. Uh, and and no matter where you look, you know, white people have Columbused it, you know, whether it's uh, hospitals or the midwifery field or the doula field or the home birthing field or whatever. Because what I believe fundamentally is that um, labor should be free <laughs> and people should have options. So everyone should be informed. And if they'd like a home birth, that should be made accessible and available. If they want doulas, they should be made accessible and available. If people want a hospital birth, that one needs to be safe and accessible and available for everyone. So uh, while everyone's fighting, people keep dying. 
naming and what we're not naming is this medical racism, but it's not like I'm the first person to say it, right? Dorothy Roberts has been talking about this since Killing the Black Body, and she's still talking about it in her newer works and and, and whatever else. So I just keep thinking of these nurses and midwives that I interviewed that are talking about how there are these like alternative, supposedly better uh fields right but those fields of midwifery and doula ship are also taken over by white women and as they move towards these credentials these national credentials the same oppressive structures are reinforced as we saw in the medical system when we examine it for its obstetric violence so that's Thought one, thought two, in terms of how I'm organizing the book and what I always thought was the connection is, you know, climate change and climate justice and 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 the way that birth justice connects to climate justice in my head, the way that birthing is such a normal, natural process that it, that has all these artificial barriers now written into it because of how society is organized and how our environment, our physical and, and um, you know, ecosystem <laughs> uh, is also a normal natural process that, that is being killed <laughs> and impacted by these artificial, you know, creations of ours and and how when we take a look at who's most impacted by climate justice it tends to be people who birth as well and 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 right now i'm thinking of what's taking place in uh, occupied palestine and the way people there can't get menstrual products mm. can't get through a pregnancy that pregnant people are being bulldozed over uh by tanks you know so so i recently read uh, a collective of like black and brown birth workers and midwives, I believe, um, put out a statement to, to connect for everyone else, you know, the conversation between reproductive justice, climate justice and colonialism and colonial um, current colonial projects. And so that's something I don't think enough people in the reproductive justice field are are understanding um, the violence, you know, embedded in colonialism is um one that impacts people who birth and the the framework of patriarchy isn't enough to understand exactly how it's all connected so we need this framework of you know post-colonial studies whatever what have you it doesn't matter it does not have to be academic we just need to understand that there are connections between what's happening uh to our planet and what's happening to people who birth so that's the second thing i'm thinking of right away and of course criminalizing you know, pregnancy, miscarriage, abortion, um, just if you take a look at anything that's happened since Roe v. Wade was overturned and these horrific cases of people being punished for having a miscarriage or a stillbirth or whatever. I mean, it's just completely unethical. And what constitutes a crime is, of course, a huge question. Um, and I know I sound like a sociologist, you know, when when I say that, but obviously it's all made up. Right. So it is not a crime to have a miscarriage, um, but it should be a crime to, you know, impact people through policy that causes them um, pain and death <laughs> and a, a criminal punishment. But that's where, you know, 
we all disagree in terms of what um, laws should do and um, how they should protect people, but in fact, they end up hurting uh, folks instead. Sure. Yeah, well, crime is political, I think, definitely. And also, uh, you had brought up toward the beginning, like, like, a medic, like a medical and a social model of uh, disability. And I know there's like a big debate around that. Um, but it is it is all very much like uh, defined by I don't even know what to say. Like defined. Well, by- it's all defined by these institutions, by the medical industrial complex and the psychiatric industrial complex, and that's clearly been um, the powers that these institutions have has developed. Um, they have developed over the last century, from from bad to worse. Sure, <laughs> and, it's, and so- I guess colonial violence is what I want to say, really. And I think that it's right that you know decolonization seems like a big factor in mitigating a lot of that and i think there's another side to it because i think a lot of important work is being done but yeah this entire thing about like criminalizing pregnancy and miscarriages has been very terrifying to live through as anybody that can get pregnant (laughs) so i'm very glad that your your work is is focusing on that because it's such an important issue and i want to i want to maybe change the topic just a little bit and get some get a take from you about when you're when you're talking to clients, because you've mentioned you 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 focus on marginalized clients and helping them and validating them, and I am so particularly interested in how spirituality intersects with your life coaching methods. I'm personally very interested in kind of post-colonial spirituality and figuring out how to decolonize spirituality and what that looks like. And I'm sure you have a lot of like firsthand practical insight about that and um and like how spiritual practices or beliefs help i think with resilience and empowerment especially for people facing societal barriers and that's kind of a complex conversation but i would love to hear what you think about it yeah um so you know (laughs) as i came across others in the wellness and spiritual wellness field I saw the same thing that I saw in academia public health or wherever else I worked which is that um, white people are given more space and voice and they being generally misinformed about their power in society um, tend to reinforce oppressive structures in the spiritual uh, fields as well so I found myself thinking you know First of all, I believe in um, the spiritual as an important component of our life. I believe in the unexplained, as I said in that one video um, you watched. I believe in multidimensionality and people's psychic and other capacities. So all of that is real. What's what's artificial is the 3D framework, right? that we've got in in which all of this oppression is embedded but what's what's also real is that the artificial framework seeps into the spiritual framework without people deconstructing or decolonizing their ideas and so what what i find when people want to work with me practically is um i have to look at the matrix of who they are and figure out 
where they are located. So they could be like uh, well-versed in tarot or in, you know, witchcraft, let's say, but they have not understood their social location in terms of their whiteness or their class position or their understanding of, you know, even things like gender is a spectrum. So we can't really, we can't really believe that there's this divine feminine and divine masculine as one of the laws out there. Because even if everyone keeps saying this has nothing to do with gender, I just don't, I just don't buy that the universe and our, and the and the consciousness that's out there would really um, name it that. But, you know, so what we're talking about, what you're asking about is spiritual gaslighting and spiritual bypassing, which is this notion of, you know, uh, leaving the world behind so that you could go on an ascension and have a spiritual evolution um, and, and refuse to confront that these um social systems impact our spiritual journeys and 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 so when i work with a person i kind of have to figure out they might want some deepening of their spiritual practice but i might have to pull them all the way back out to to start grounding them in some feminism some you know intersectionality and so that's why i'm saying that the person that i am is the is the right person for the now you know like because my spiritual uh path was always there and i meandered often on it but i'm glad i got the training that i did to now talk about the spiritual the way i do so that i'm not one of those people who uh, refuses to confront inequality um as i talk about you know healing others and then for multiply marginalized people as you said spirituality is so important especially deconstructed spirituality because it can empower them. And so that person might be really knowledgeable, whether they want to or not, about racism or sexism or homophobia and be stuck in these, you know, oppressive systems and structures, but they need to recognize how powerful they are. Mm -hmm. and, and by powerful, I don't just mean, you know, in the 3D, but that they are divine. <laughs> and so actually, you know, for the most marginalized of clients, you know, their immediate concerns are obviously financial. They're obviously material. You know, they're not able to um, explore spirituality or their divinity because, well, they're working all the time or they're parenting all the time. And this is one of the many ways that I that I can see the 3d suppressing ability you know in that sense because like regardless of your position every single one of us has the capacity to like shift dimensions and uh and help others and and you know do magic but people who are oppressed don't have the space and the time and the peace and the ease and the calm to recognize it and what's interesting is that the universe does not always care and it'll kind of throw folks into their abilities. You know, they'll discover they have visions or they can, 
uh, see something and they might be very scared to explore it. And so what's wonderful is that I can be like, tell me all about things you are scared to talk about. You tell me about you know what others would laugh about and and let's let's work on that so so sometimes the universe doesn't wait until you're in your most evolved place to to throw you but i think when it comes to just kind of religious paths and 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 more institutional religion i've really been upset lately at how women and like trans people and people of color and whatever have been denied the opportunity to establish their own religions and paths and even be in those positions of authority you know so we could just re we could just take a look at organized religion and say that lots of people are denied you know the highest ascendant positions right of being uh, at the top of the church at the front of the pew whatever so that's a problem but even in more mm, decentralized spiritual spaces we see very similar structures um and very similar people at the top or given voice or given um authority as healers and that's that's a lot of false hmm. truth um you know so like there will be people i'm endlessly fascinated by this by the way that's why i'm kind of meandering here too there will be people who are channeling a being let's say i've talked about this on my personal tiktok a lot and that being will say not to vaccinate hmm. in a pandemic and i am a spiritual being who does not channel any being, let's say. Um, I just get downloads, I'm claircognizant, I just know things, I see things, whatever. And I and it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if that person is in a different um, lifeline than me, <laughs> in a different dimension where that makes sense and it doesn't to me, or if they're, they have confirmation bias, kind of where what they're channeling is what they're, beliefs are anyway and so then they're like oh don't get the vaccine this being i'm channeling is telling me the the truth and you know i'm telling you the truth and so it, it gets very very murky it gets very murky because there are scammers in every field academia wellness spiritual work life coaching the legal system, religion, politics, all of that. And we need discernment now more than ever. And that's perfect. And yeah, go ahead. Oh no, just I totally want to second that discernment is where it's at. That's the that's how we but I mean I talk about discernment all the time with my students and you know they come from all paths of life and are all kinds of ages and we we develop discernment in different ways it, it, and sometimes it takes decades of doing something and then all of a sudden you get a realization that it that it's all made up kind of and we spiritually awaken at different times too like yeah. some of us as children and some of us in our 60s and so uh, so that's not anything you can control necessarily so for a long time a person could be entirely closed off to their magic and just be like I'm a scientist I'm an atheist and 
I think I, I played that for a little bit when I was a teenager. And I, I now have a teenager myself who's like that. <laughs> and, um, and I feel like it's a developmental phase that some people go through. And so he's very adamant that none of the magical areas of life I speak about are, are real, you know, and I kind of, um, say to myself let him have his own soul's journey because boy is that spiritual awakening gonna hit him when it does <laughs> and you'll be here hopefully or in whatever dimension helping along because you can't force it you know so so I see people go through grad school and law school and med school and they believe in these fields and they want to be this that and the other and that's fine and I think you kind of have to, don't you? You kind of have to because you won't believe it otherwise. It's the same thing when people want to get married and have kids or like get married to men and have kids. I have to be like, you got to let them have their soul's journey because you cannot convince a person that they don't need to do that and they don't need to have kids and and how hard it is. And then you'll just be there for them after their divorce and their children. <laughs> And they come to realize they're autistic and their brain is on fire. And you'll say, yeah, like I tried to tell you, but I think we all have to go through it. Nevertheless, like knowing what I know now, I don't think our our path forward is to try to prevent any of this from happening to folks because they do need to experience it. But it, it does feel like a train wreck sometimes watching a train wreck when when I'm on Twitter and I'm on academic Twitter and people are like, oh, I'm going to go get a PhD because I'm so excited to learn about X, Y, and Z. And I'm, and I'm sitting there like already having a panic attack <laughs> for them. Yeah. For them, because that is not a good reason to go get a PhD. And there are so many amazing people doing, um, like a DIY PhD where they're holding themselves accountable for certain learning and they're hitting certain goals and they're not paying, you know, and it's great um, because, you know, education, we're so privileged in this country to, to, to get access to so many resources. And, and, and so it does not have to be, you know, collegiate or, or through higher ed, but, but many people of course think it does. And so, <sighs> So I, I don't know, I mentor a lot of folks who want to go into the fields we talked about or who want to go into um, running their own business or whatever, whatever the case may be. And and I need to find a balance, I keep saying, and, and I'm, I'm finding it um, of encouragement. Right. And also um, giving them that discernment that I did not have. Uh, saying, here's what I thought it would be like, and here's what it ended up being like. Will it end up like this for you? I don't know, but it's just something I want you to be informed about. Um, so the way I parent my children, you know, where I say, like, here's what's happened, here's what might happen. Uh, you know, you got to kind of make a call, and then we'll we'll address the consequences of your of your decisions. Um, but, you know, I can't tell you what to do, even though I want to um, uh -huh. and I know what to do. It just uh, might interfere uh, with their development. Um, so, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've gotten to this place where I want to prevent 
uh, hurt from happening to my mentees and students and clients and, and children. And, and it seems that is an important part of their life anyway, that you can't necessarily prevent it all from playing out the way it's meant to. So, so, so this really makes me think about destiny and, um, the way some people believe in, you know, soul contracts and that we, we signed up for this life and, you know, for all its twists and turns and, and we did so knowingly and then forgotten. I think about that all the time because I, I actually also think that we're incredibly powerful in shifting uh, our destiny too. So I used to think things are predestined and what's meant to be will be, and that's true. But to the extent that we need to wake up to our own magical abilities, I think we can actually, um, shift things, um, both small and large. And, uh, and the more I come into my own power, the more I talk to the universe as an equal, I used to beg things of the universe. And I used to ask things of the universe. And I used to pray things of the universe. And over the course of my life, I started to say, here's what, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I say is going to happen. Uh, because this is me talking to me. <laughs> and so the closer I now get to that all-knowing divine spark of consciousness, <laughs> the more I talk to it like a peer. <laughs> and uh, and in and during very difficult times in my life, I've told myself, my divine self, what I think should happen. So for example, when my wife was pregnant and the pregnancy wasn't going well and the baby wasn't growing, and this was one of the most devastating moments in our life, and it was already reaching 24 weeks, which is when New York State can legally allow you a late stage abortion, I spoke to the universe and to my wife's body and to the baby inside her. And I said, here's what I said. I don't know what is meant to be, but if I have to choose between the two of you, um, I'll choose my wife and we can always have another baby and I can meet you in other dimensions. And so I am making a decision, a tough call here to say, please keep her, you know, let me keep her. So later, after we did the abortion and my wife's health improved drastically, it was the right thing to do and to tell the universe. And the universe gave me the child that I carried um, later on, who's this magical being. But when I had one of the more serious spiritual awakenings of my life, I saw the other baby in a dimension with my grandmother, who's also passed and has continued and have continued to see her here and there and also saw dimensions where she lived. And perhaps my wife didn't. And kind of lived through those two a little bit. And it really showed me kind of how when there are these crossroads in life and you are the powerful being that you are, you can 
say, here's what I choose. And the universe will shift. It will shift that way. And then whatever uh, the consequences of that decision uh, will be, will be in that dimension. <laughs> and so it, it's like a lot of our magic is connected to um, pregnancy and life and death actually it's it's at those times that you learn a lot um because that isn't really uh that that is outside of this 3d framework in in many ways that is where the th the veil is thin you know and um uh after we had this child through reciprocal ivf we had two on ice two embryos on ice and i had a very serious discussion with the universe as well when I said, no more children for me. You got to take these souls, take them, uh, and I'll see them some other time. It was a really tough conversation. I always have these conversations like outside under the night sky <laughs> where I feel most expanded in my being. <laughs> and it was a tough decision, you know, um, but I said, uh, let's donate to science and let's have these embryos help somebody else you know figure out their uh their life and and um and so those are the components of our reproductive journeys that i don't think uh people share enough you know about and um how much of life includes pain and so especially in the last few months, seeing what we're seeing and experiencing um, through social media, what people in Palestine are facing or the Congo or Sudan, there's a lot of grief. <laughs> there's so much grief we're carrying right now that I think we're being changed by it. I think right now this pain we're seeing is is changing a lot of us spiritually, but we're not to just get back on on topic we're not really able to understand what's changing if we don't know how to talk about what's taking place uh or if we we don't have an understanding of you know uh inequality in the world so people are feeling a lot of things right now but they need guidance they need education they need terminology you know and so some of my clients you know feel a lot they they have really powerful gifts you know of of reiki and healing right and 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 channeling and whatever but what good is any of that if you don't know where palestine is located on a map or what social media is doing or not doing or you know you have you have to have media literacy right some kind of critical understanding of what's coming across um our feeds and 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 propaganda stuff like that so i think we can all learn something whether spiritually or in this world and then each of our journeys is kind of figuring out how to integrate the spiritual with the social and how to embody that integration um without without leaving this world behind so there's you know in the spiritual community a lot of talk of just like let's leave this world behind let's 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 live someplace um without electricity or or whatever and it's like actually a lot of folks already do that and it's not by choice and this choice you're making is 
reflective of huge privilege and you do need to actually name that and and this land you're taking is already stolen and like we need to talk about that you know so so there's a lot each of us can learn um and i'm just glad that the two of us are having a conversation where these topics can be combined yeah i thank you so much for sharing that i'm so honored that you um would would talk to me about that and uh you talk about grief and pain and another idea that came to mind as you were talking through that was rage that I wanted to bring up too. And I wanted to ask what you think about rage because I know there is so much pain in the world. And I do think I agree with you. It's spiritual bypassing. It's, it's a, it's a way to not level up to just kind of ignore and be like, well, we're beyond it. We're all one thing. It's fine. Um, But no. And then there's for people that are really in it, in the mud of it, there is a rage. And I know that in some ways that rage can be a source of undeniable, incredible power and uh, uh, survival resilience. Um, it's to me in some ways, rage is kind of like one of those things like love and life force that is just one of those core kind of energetic flow things. But then there's also a level where I wonder if it limits us at a point or I, I think that we need to process and then reintegrate all of that. I think that we need to take time to feel those things and sit in uncomfortable spaces. Um, and rage is one of those things. We have to be, uh, we have to allow for it to exist and be what it is. But um, I wonder how that plays out with some of your clients and how maybe, I don't know, um, how you might advise them if they're, if they're, if people get stuck in that, or if you do see it as something that can be very empowering like that? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. I have uh, thought about this so much uh, for so many years. I mean, even many of my social media handles um, include the word fury in it, because uh, I always considered myself to be moved by justified and righteous rage. Um, but this comes from my training in women's studies, especially in Black feminism, because of that initial essay that I read, you know, called On the Uses of Anger. And it's it's not the same as rage, but anyway, it's related uh, on how... Um, white supremacy silences uh, marginalized people through respectability politics and through uh, forcing a set of behaviors that, um, you know, are sanitized, that don't permit for rage, that don't permit for riot and protest and justified grief and, and, um, and, political response or an activist response you know that's why for example people dismiss feminists as angry and man-hating and i just read this um article where people are like a stereotype is that a feminist is a man-hating you know angry person but it's just a stereotype and and we should be accepting of everyone and 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 be kind and polite and whatever and i was just like no i disagree it's mm -hmm. totally fine to be an angry feminist and if you aren't um enraged you're not paying attention and we're we're not going to be silenced and it's 
so first, I think that it's important for marginalized people to experience express their rage uh, because suppressing it causes illness and um and it ages people faster you know we could talk about minority stress and all of that from the public health perspective but there's that concept of weathering as well um that over time racism and experiences of it weathers on the body it erodes the body you know and we can talk about every other form of oppression doing something similar but in the spiritual realm in terms of embodying our rage without becoming consumed by it is what you're asking without becoming it versus anything else is an excellent question and I consider it to be a facet of a very multifaceted being. And so when, whenever I see a person who hasn't yet met that version of themselves, I think that's a very important uh, next step is to let a person somatically or, you know, physically or whatever, psychologically uh get angry start screaming start moving i think there's a lot of as you said life force to it i think it is productive i think it is destructive and i think that's fine i don't consider that to be mutually exclusive or contradictory at all um it's kind of like birth you know and death it's both it's productive and destructive um, when you have a baby for the first time, the person who you were before that dies and a mother is born and that's not all you are, but it's the first time you are that <laughs> and labor is destructive in so many ways and productive in so many ways. So I always come back to that as a, as a moment outside of our world in some ways. And so rage is the same to me, like. I would say spite is a close sister of it. And spite has led me to completion, to finishing so mm -hmm. much of what I intended. Um, and people say, don't do it out of spite. And I say, do it out of spite mm -hmm. because it is going to move you forward. And because it's a legitimate way of navigating something oppressive and difficult and traumatizing. And, and so let it do what it needs to do as you said and then when it runs its course you will shift inevitably so until the rage is out of your system it has yet to teach you something is how i talk to my clients about it yeah. because if you're still angry that means you're not fully communicating to whomever or whatever or even to yourself that something's bothering you or that something hurt and upset you so we need to try a variety of methods of um giving that rage some some oxygen so i think of it as like fire right some it's like this all consuming kind of fire you got to give it more you got to make it so consuming that it ends it has no choice because i used to suffer from severe panic attacks panic attacks so bad i thought i was literally on fire and dying every time i was in one and instead of kind of um fighting them which i've 
tried to do my whole life. The last few bouts of this at the beginning of this year, actually, I think I just surrendered entirely to the darkness. And when I did, I was able to shift eventually. I I just never fully surrendered to that to that to that fear and that darkness, that rage, that pain. And so I think that it is not infinite and it is not unbounded. I think eventually it will shift into something else and and you'll integrate it as part of your multifaceted being. Kind of like how when you first come out as bi or queer or a lesbian and it's all consuming and that's all you think about, but in, eventually um, it's just part of who you are, you know, and it's not so consuming. Um, and you don't have to put the rainbows everywhere. Although I, you know, I still do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, it, but sometimes, you know, that's kind of part of our development. <laughs> we got to put all the rainbows everywhere first. And then eventually it's just, <laughs> it's just part of who you are as a rainbow. That's kind of how I think about it. So, um, so the other thing as you were talking that I was thinking is how we are not allowed in the spiritual wellness space to be full of rage because it shows low vibrational frequency or whatever. And again, I must state that I don't believe that's how it works. <laughs> I don't believe in the low vibrational, high vibrational frequency breakdown <laughs> of the healing spaces at all. I think it's so toxic to say that if you are fully healed, you will be calm at all times and you will ascend these human emotions uh, like anger. That is not true. Not true to me. You know, I'll say to me personally, it is not my truth. Um, I suppose your mileage may vary, but I think a fully healed person is an impossibility. That's first. And I think... A, a a more healed person can experience all emotions they come across and just acknowledge it, let it work through your body, as you said, and be like, wow, you know, I'm really angry. I really feel like my head's on fire right now. Like, what is this? And, you know, I journal uh, as a result a lot or I I speak into a voice note or I, I I need a sounding board essentially. I always need someone to hear me through and as I hear as I hear myself talk through whatever the rage etc the answers come a revelation shows up it, it's always something revealed um and so a more healed person would simply speak back to the rage give it a dimension like I give it you know I have a I have a mind palace. I know that sounds so autistic and very Sherlock Holmes of me, but I have a mind palace in which all my beings chill and hang out. I have several. Um, and so I go to the main room. Uh, there's this like giant throne in the main room of my palace. And I say, rage, take the throne. Mm. And rage takes the throne. Rage becomes... Um, solid in that moment and i say take the throne and speak or scream or do what you need to do take the throne and then after that spiritual magical witchcraft work or whatever it dissipates you know and sometimes other 
dimensions take the throne inner child takes the throne inner teenager takes the throne lust takes the throne you know insecurity whatever um i give them space to do that to to reign for a little bit but it cannot reign supreme because uh nothing can <laughs> you know like change is the only constant right so like it's a very democratic uh process i i guess very socialist <laughs> up in my mind palace where you know you could take the the throne but not forever and um you spoke of integration last and i think there are certain pains and certain griefs that cannot be resolved in this lifetime i think the pain is so severe the trauma so bad that it'll it'll define the rest of your life and um of course people can do a lot with the rest of their life but there are certain unspeakable tragedies unspeakable human experiences that i think are very very difficult to overcome given the world as it is right now not enough healers out there not enough you know support community um so so i think of it as this like extension into the universe that in this lifetime they experience this and then in other lifetimes they will heal it uh, or in other lifetimes as we experience them now that that healing may or may not take place i i think there are certain things i can feel them but i do not fully understand them that are not for us to understand that may take many lifetimes to work out. And I I struggle a lot with the concept I mentioned before of how it was all agreed to beforehand, um, that a soul would come in and, you know, I don't know, live until it's one years old, I guess, after getting all its limbs blown off. I, I have to sit there and be like, was that on purpose? Because that's what people ask me. People struggle with this idea of it being predetermined and agreed to and then forgotten. And what's it all for? And I think that's a really important question where where people ask a spiritual question, but it's more of a life question, too. But, you know, and they say, how could it be? What's it all for? How could those souls be here for that purpose and to experience that much pain? And even if they're gone now and they're passed on, the people who survive them experience so much pain. Is that their, you know, part of their mission? And it must be. But I talk to the universe, you know, as a peer and I say, you know, some of this feels insurmountable. The grief and the pain. I can't imagine what it feels like and I don't want to imagine it. And I I'm pretty angry <laughs> and then I say and what does that matter because I'm privileged and safe for now and and I just don't understand what lessons we're supposed to learn from it because honestly um I've experienced a ton of trauma in my own life um that is connected to you know children uh, being hurt and and whatnot and and I I've seen a lot of atrocious images over the past few months and personally i don't need any more of death and despair in order to learn 
whatever I'm supposed to learn from this, but I'm questioning the universe here and there for meaning. Uh, and I realize that's a very old human quest, right? Because throughout all our lives and grief and pain and war and despair, so many must have questioned and asked God and the universe why so that must be part of our incessant questioning and journey or whatever. But honestly, when my clients ask what is the meaning and what is the purpose of this grief and pain, uh, I do not think I have a lot of answers. And I I don't think I'm supposed to, but I just think that right now people are at a crossroads in many ways yeah. that pertains to our faith hope spiritual work magic at a crossroads for why keep going i mean i feel like that's a relevant question a lot of clients ask you know because folks have anxiety and depression and mental illness and just uh, are struggling and so uh, I never shy away from questions like that um, and I don't simply say you need therapy and medication you know I think that people do need therapy and do need medication but it's okay to ask those questions of each other <laughs> it's how we connect as human beings and perhaps the lesson in all of this is to connect better more authentically without lying to ourselves and each other sorry i'm a huge mess i am not sorry <laughs> i will not apologize for feeling intensely <laughs> through this conversation. thank you for feeling intensely this is every word of this i'm hanging on i'm so thankful for your just your presence you're brilliant and a shining light thank really you so are you thank you well i'm I have a lot to reflect on myself after this conversation and I really appreciate you so much. Um, I think this might be a good place to, to stop, but this has really been such a gift. I really have. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Simone Kolish, I hope I'm saying yeah. that right. Um, yeah. Dr. Simone Kolish, this, this book, uh, your book is everyday violence, the public harassment of women and LGBTQ people. And we'll look forward to your forthcoming book as well. I'm so thankful for your time today. And uh, if anyone needs me, you can find me at defiantlifecoaching.com. Yeah, we'll put that all in the... To working with any and all of you. Yeah. And thank you for listening to this wonderful podcast.